You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast featuring some of Indiana's most fascinating men and women whose impact has shaped our state, our communities, and us. Join us as we discuss their imprint on our history. Leaders and Legends is brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated, your local veteran business enterprise specializing in public relations, media relations, public outreach, crisis communications, and digital photography. My name is Robert Bain, Principal of Veteran Strategies, former Deputy Chief of Staff to Mayor Greg Ballard, and Communications Director for the Indiana Republican Party. I'm honored to be your host for our discussion. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies Incorporated and sponsored by the Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer, and the historic Crown Plaza at Union Station and Grand Conference Hall in downtown Indianapolis. Today, our guest is the redoubtable, the renowned, the envied, at least by me, Eddie White. Thank you, sir. Uh, thank you. I, I don't think I've ever been called those things. I've been called a lot of other things, but uh, thank you. It's good to be here. Well, it's very kind of you uh, to join us. We've been pretty heavy on like uh, government officials and, and, and business people and politicos, and I want to try to do more sports figures, and you're so well-known. You've had such an incredible career. We're very, very grateful. Most people don't realize, perhaps, but maybe the more you talk, they will. You are not from Indiana. No, no. I, I grew up in, I'm a two-time Hoosier, uh, and I'll explain that. I grew up in Wilkesbury, Pennsylvania. Uh, went to college there, Wilkes University. Well, though it was Wilkes College when I graduated from there. And then like in the last 10, 12 years or so, it's been it's now university. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if I'm smarter now because I graduated <laughs> from university as opposed to a college. Uh, and then the first time I moved to Indiana was to South Bend to work at the University of Notre Dame. And there you'll be able department. to connect Wilkes Bar with Notre Dame. Because Many, of a certain uh, football player. Uh, well, there's a Rocket Ishmael is one. Uh, <laughs> yes, and then the the great uh, one of the great players of Notre Dame. The, the, they had those four legendary players that Grantland Rice wrote about back in the day. One of them was a guy named Jim Crawley, and Jim Crawley was from Scranton. But uh, but anyway, so I go to South Bend. That's the first time I moved to Indiana, and then I spent some time with your team, the Miami Dolphins, as their PR guy down in South Florida. And then I moved to Indiana a second time uh, to Indianapolis uh, to work for then Logo Seven, and I've been ever since. So I am a two-time Hoosier and very proud of it. What brings you? I I can understand obviously why you went to Notre Dame, and we're going to talk about that in a few minutes. But what what brought you back after being here one time? What made you want to come back? Believe it or not, Wilkesbury, Pennsylvania is a small town, and I mean, I uh, in fact, when I got to Notre Dame, I had never been on a plane. Uh, you know, in fact, I was in a situation where when I went to school at Wilkes, I lived at home. My mom and dad couldn't afford room and board, so I basically had four more years of high school living at home with my mother doing my laundry and stuff like that. And then my alma mater hired me, so I still stayed at home. So the first time I ever moved away in my life was to South Bend to work at Notre Dame. And I love South Bend. You know, South Bend was small, just like Wilkesbury, but it was Notre Dame. And But then the opportunity came up to be the, the head guy with the Dolphins. And I didn't want to leave because we had just hired... I had Lou Holtz, and I knew we were going to win, but it was Lou Holtz that told me in just the way Lou could. He said, you know, he had that one year we coached the Jets, and he said to me, yeah, Eddie, right. you didn't want to get up one day, be 45 years old, and wonder, wonder what it was like to work in the National Football League. You owe it to yourself to go down there and try what it is to work with Don Shula, the greatest coach of all time. So I'm like, okay, I got it. I got it. <laughs> so I said, I'll give it a shot. And our athletic director, Gene Corrigan, who was just a phenomenal guy, said, hey, go down there, and if you don't like it, you could always come back. You'll always be part of the Notre Dame family. So... 
Went down to Miami, and it was a phenomenal experience. And so many, it laid the groundwork for so many things that came after in my life. And I learned a lot because you go from being the assistant at Notre Dame to now you're the head guy. And I think so many, t- so many of us who work in whatever field, when you're the assistant, a lot of times you look at the head guy and go, well, he doesn't do anything. He's always on the phone. When you're the head guy, you're the one that has to tell, you know, the, the, the small little newspaper in Miami Beach that they can't have four credentials. They can only get two. And you got to explain to them why. And you have to make the decisions of who gets to interview Dan Marino and who doesn't. And uh, you have to, there's a lot of decisions you have to make. So I love the opportunity. And so many great things happened. I designed the press box in Joe Robbie Stadium our first year and accomplished a lot that I couldn't accomplish probably any other NFL team because of our dynamic with Joe Robbie and Shula. But I never took to Miami. I'm a small-town person. I'm the type of person that if we're walking down the street and you're coming this way and I'm going that way and I don't even know you, I'm going to make eye contact. I'm going to say, how you doing? You know, or what's up or something like that. I'm not going to keep my head down or whatever. And I never, never took to Miami. I never took to South Beach. I never got into that thing. And I wanted to get out of Miami. And through a guy who ran the Super Bowl for many, many years for the NFL, Jim Steig, he had a friend of his, Jim grew up in Fort Wayne, a buddy of his from Fort Wayne, Fort Wayne named Tom Shine had a company called Logo 7 on the east side of Indianapolis on Shadeland Avenue. And they were one of the oldest licensees of the NFL, but nobody knew them. People knew Starter. People knew Wilson. They knew champion. All, but champion. But they did not know Logo 7 or where it was. And Tom was looking for a PR person. Didn't have one. And uh, Jim Steig said, hey, there's a guy. He's a PR guy for the Dolphins. I think he'd be great. And Tom's like, yeah, but is this guy going to leave Miami and move to Indianapolis? <laughs> and I met with them at the Super Bowl. And uh, and they said, I remember interviewing with him and this other guy. And they said, listen, you're going to have to move to Indianapolis. I'm like, no problem. I said, I love Indianapolis. I said, when I was with the Dolphins and I would advance the Colts games, that's when we had some city blocks that were just empty. Yeah. Remember, they were, just, they were empty. And I love this. I remember going to Union well, the mall Station. Is now. Yeah, exactly. I remember going to Union Station and all those little shops in there. And I just loved the people. And then when I was in South Bend, you know, years before that, I'd come down here for concerts at the, at the Hoosier Dome. And so I always had great memories of Indianapolis. I said, I'd love to live in Indianapolis. Moved here and I've been here ever since. Many different jobs since then, but I've been in Indianapolis ever since. When you were young, when you were in, in college, what drew you to sports? That's a great question. Um, I love sports. I wasn't any good at it. Uh, in fact, in high school, I remember uh, trying out for our football team as a sophomore in high school, and my mother gave us the news that she was pregnant with the, my little sister. And so I had to quit football in high school and go work at the A&P as a clerk. That's a supermarket <laughs> back east. Atlantic and, and Pacific. That's it. And I would you know, be a checker and all that stuff. And and uh, so instead of going to football practice after school, I went and worked at the A&P. And um, so I love sports and followed and all that stuff. And then when I graduated, getting out of high school, uh, I was going to go to Wilkes. And they encouraged me to take a class before I uh, the fall semester. So I looked through this thing and saw that there was this course called Journalism 101. And I thought, you know, and I always thought, this is how weird I am. You know me, but I am very weird. When I was a senior in high school. In a good way. In a good way. This, but this defines me. As a senior in high school, uh, I want to be one of three things. And this defines me. One, a disc jockey, which nowadays they don't have them, so if you're under 40, Google it. Disc jockey. Two, a sports writer. And three, I wanted to be a writer for Sesame Street. Now, that really defines me. I really think that defines me because I wanted I, – I was fascinated with my mother having my little sister. I was fascinated by how people at Sesame Street can write things as adults to teach little kids. 
Like that, boy, that'd be a great challenge. So I want to be one of those three things, which is bizarre. Are you more it, Bert or Ernie? I think I'm Oscar the Grouch. I might be the cookie monster, to be honest with you. Um, that was so, a big piece of cake you had before no, we started. No, no. <laughs> yeah, it was true. Um, but anyway, so uh, I went to Wilkes, and I figured I'll take this journalism 101, and I was hooked. You know, when I learned, you know, the who, what, you know, the who, what, where, what, when you write a release, and learned about public relations, and then realized that there was a thing I like called sports public relations. I didn't even know that it existed. And uh, immediately... What showed up in the sports information office at Wilkes, they hired one student assistant, and I wanted a job, and they gave it to me. And I was their student assistant for my first freshman year. And then that parlayed itself into my junior year of the SID left to go do PR at a hospital. And the, again, this is a small school, 2,000 kids. Uh, the president, Bob Capen at Wilkes, said, you know what? Let's just let Eddie be the SID as a student. That's we'll, the sports we'll save, information director. Yeah, we'll save money, and uh, you'll be the SID. We'll give you half a scholarship. Well, that was music to my parents' ears. Oh, my God, I'm able to go to school, and, and Wilkes is paying half. And, uh, Did you get to move out then? No, no, no. no I still lived at home. And, um, and you know, so my senior year, I was co-sports director of our radio station. I was sports editor of our school paper. I was our school sports information director. I was a full-time student, and I wrote a column for the Citizen's Voice, one of the three local papers in Wilkes-Barre. And I was oh, president of Journalism Society. So I had a lot going on, and, uh, but, I, but I enjoyed it, and, and I, I got the bug. And, and I made it a dream that I want to do this for a living. Like, I want to work in sports. The, the ironic thing is I made it a dream to work at Notre Dame. Because going to, there was a sports information convention my senior year, I believe, in Philadelphia. So it was close enough where I could drive two hours to Philly for it. And I heard this guy speak, Roger Valdeseri, and he is considered the greatest sports information director of all time, long time at the University of Notre Dame. And their media guides were the best. They always got the best. And um, I just res- loved how they, how they did PR. The weird thing was, I didn't really like Notre Dame growing up as a little kid. I liked Alabama because that's where Joe Namath went. That's but right. I respected Notre Dame for what they did. And I made it a dream of mine as a senior in college to someday work at Notre Dame. My game plan was go somewhere like a Villanova, Virginia for like 10, 12 years, be an assistant, and then maybe get to Notre Dame. So I graduated from Wilkes and they reward me and say, we want you to stay here and be the SID full-time, $8,000 a year. I took the job. Still living at home with mom and dad. May we ask the year? This would have been 1981. Yeah. yeah, Were you a Steelers fan? Hmm? No, 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 no. You were a Jets Jets, fan. Yeah, Jets Jets fan. And a Phillies fan. Because right, Northeastern PA, you know, you're you're two hours from Philly, two from New York. So you got all the teams and you got Philly and New York TV stations. And so anyway, so uh, that was my dream. That was my game plan. And uh, so they reward me and I'm... SID at Wilkes College. And so I started applying for jobs. And over about a year and a half period, um, I finished second for nine straight jobs. Like SID, assistant SID at Richmond, assistant SID at Princeton, assistant SID at Georgetown, SID at Bloomsburg State, where the guy told me, I should hire you, but somebody knows somebody who knows somebody, so I can't, I got to hire somebody else. It, you'd rather well, and sports were booming on the East Coast in the early to mid '80s. You had Villanova winning the national championship, mm-hmm. Georgia winning the national championship. Mm-hmm. Pitt football was really good. Obviously, Penn State football was really good. So you had a lot of really successful programs in different sports right in that area. Mm-hmm. And, and, and both college, yeah, and college and pro were, were rolling. And I, I wanted to work at that level, but I kept finishing second. 
which is the most depressing thing in the world. You'd rather finish 100th. Second is painful. You doubt yourself at the first or, first or second rejection. You doubt yourself, which I did. You doubt God, which I did. You doubt where you grew up, how you grew up. You know, I didn't have money, blah, 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 mm-hmm. blah. You know, right. I, I just was full of doubt. And then the job that I get is the one that if you took that job and the nine I finished second for, put the 10 on the table and said, which one do you want? Assistant Sports Information Director at the University of Notre Dame. So you get there in 86 or 87? 85? 80, 80, 82. 82. You get there in 82. 82. So Jerry Faust is Jerry the Faust. coach. Mm-hmm. He is um, not doing very well. Uh, he had some really, really tough seasons. Of he had course, some big wins and some bad losses. That's certainly true. Yeah. Uh, he, he was hired straight out of high school. Uh, Bo Beckler famously said, I'll never lose to a high school coach. That wasn't true. He think he lost once. To Faust. First night game ever at Notre Dame. Must go with lights. 1982. And Faust follows Dan Devine, who had won a national championship with Joe Montana, who had followed Eric Parsegian, who had won two national championships. So he's following two legends. He has a really terrible five years. What was that like, considering the pinnacle of Notre Dame football was basically, not the pinnacle, but close to it, maybe other than Rockney and Leahy, the previous 20 years, and now Notre Dame is down, down, down. I think for Notre Dame Nation, it was a major shock to their system. Just as you well documented, they were on a run. I mean, every coach that they had brought in to that point had got it done. You know, they always talk about the great coaches at Notre Dame have all won a national championship in their third season. That's right. And, uh, you know, Lou, or excuse me, uh, Jerry had some big wins. You know, going down and beating, I think, top five LSU at LSU on a Saturday night. And then we lose the Air Force three years in a row. And he's still, to this day, one of the most remarkable, wonderful, kind people I have ever known. He, and I get the sense the university treats him well. Yes. Yeah, he goes back for a lot of the games. And, um, you know, they, they, they did. After he left, they treated him well. And, um, uh, you know, but he was, uh, he was a wonderful person. And, uh, you know, maybe looking back, maybe they should not have hired somebody right out of high school, even though Moeller was not your normal high school at that time. No, it was no. a national power yes. winning uh, consistently. And it's it's funny because to do a George Costanza here where worlds are colliding, and we'll talk about this in just a few minutes, but for years there was the rumor that Shula, Don Shula, coach of the Dolphins, devout Catholic, Hungarian Catholic, would coach Notre Dame. And it obviously never came to pass, but there was that kind of buzz and rumor there's a story that I heard from different people that when the university, and this is long before cell phones and faxes and all that stuff, but when Era was leaving, uh, Father nineteen seventy four, right? Father Joyce, uh, went, you know, was looking for a coach, and our athletic director Moose Krause was looking for a coach, and Moose Krause supposedly met in Carolina at an alum's house up in the hills with Don Shula who had just won a couple of Super Bowls with the Dolphins. Don Shula, who goes to Mass every day of his life. Don Shula, who went to school as a little kid singing the Notre Dame Victory March every day, which Lou Holtz did the same thing, both from the great state of Ohio. And I think Shula went to Aquinas? Uh, I don't know what high school, but he's from, uh, begins with a W. Lou was from Liverpool, Yeah, but they're Ohio, very, they're right? very similar. Yeah, very, very similar. And I work for both of them. They're both, like, tough. They're demanding, uh, which makes them great. <laughs> but Shula said, yes, I want the job. So uh, Moose goes back to South Bend and tells Father Joyce, I think I got our coach. And Father Joyce says, I already hired a coach. He says, who'd you hire? He goes, I hired Dan Devine. He's coach Green Bay Packers. Yeah, like, what? That's right. So years later, 
I'm down with the Dolphins and a gentleman named Charlie Callahan, who was the old SID at Notre Dame before Roger Valdeseri and was the first PR guy in the history of the Miami Dolphins through those perfect seasons and stuff. He's now retired at this point. He comes over to visit us from Bradenton, wanted to see Coach Shula. And I had met Charlie a couple times when I was at Notre Dame. So we go to dinner. I said, Charlie, I heard this story. He, he confirms it. He heard the same story. I said, so you were at Notre Dame for 100 years. You know, John Ewart's Heisman, Horning's Heisman, all those greats. And you worked for Don Shula the early years and, and the perfect season. What would it have been like, Shula, to Notre Dame? And Charlie said, Eddie, it wouldn't have been fair. An off year at Notre Dame would have been one fluke loss. But with Shula's detail, attention to detail, his knowledge of football. You know, the beauty of Don Shula was, and, and Bum Phillips said it about Shula, he could take his and beat yours, and he could turn around and take yours and beat his. He won with Marino passing. He 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 won with, with Zonk and those guys running the ball. He won with a great defense. He won with a crappy defense. He just won. He was, you know, to this day, here we are. We're playing 16 regular season games now in the NFL, and there's all this glamour and stuff like that. Today, still, the winningest coach in the history of the National Football League is Donald Francis Shula. That's right. And we're going to talk about that because, as everyone knows, because uh, – we are recording this a few days after the second week of the current NFL season, so my Facebook page is getting lit up with uh, pro dolphin posts. All my friends, God love them, they're taking care of me. Uh, you didn't. You take the good with the bad. I Absolutely. Guess. When did you leave? Holtz comes in '86. I left after Coach Holtz first year, and they had a remarkable run under Lou Holtz. Not surprising at all to you, I'm guessing. No, I I, I believe. And yeah, I was sure some bias because I worked for him and he remains a friend. I think he has to go down as one of the top five coaches, certainly top 10, but I'd say top in the history of college football because he won at William and Mary. You know, he won at Arkansas. You know, you win at Minnesota, you win at Notre Dame, and then you come out years later and yeah, yeah I think you won one game or no game no first year at South Carolina. Carolina. And he beats Ohio State back to back January one bowl games. So he won everywhere he went. And I think, I, I, you know, being around sports as long as I have, especially in this state, there's two jobs I think are just really hard and you have to have a certain mm, to get them done. Head football coach at Notre Dame, head basketball coach at IU. This isn't Utah. This isn't Virginia. This isn't. Uh, you know, Arizona. Th- these are two institutions that the bar is set so high, and not only do you have to coach, but you have a fandom that is insane. It's about the banners in southern Indiana, and it's about the national championship and the rings in northern Indiana, and you have an alumni. That, and that's why I think Lou Holtz, if you go to Central Casting, he's the, he was the best coach that, that Notre Dame could have because he always said the right things. We'd win, and he'd say, it's not about our football team. It's about our lady on the dome. <laughs> he, and that's oh, what we wanted to hear. his post-game interviews were like – They're the greatest. Every time he – every he could have played Ron Colley, and you would have thought they were the Steelers in 1978. His, we used to laugh when he would say, I tell you something, Air Force is one of the best 2-8 and eight football teams in the country. <laughs> All right, think about that. One of the best 2-8 and eight football teams in the country. But he, he was just perfect for Notre Dame. And – and um, I think that's yeah, I think that's the bar that they've set, and we're blessed to have both of those institutions, those teams in our state. You're listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer, and the historic Crown Plaza at Union Station and Grand Conference Hall. We're here with Eddie White, 
storyteller extraordinaire and beloved local sports and talk show figure. You were around for his first year, but you also got to be around Tim Brown, who won the Heisman in 87, Mm -hmm. I believe. What was it like to be around him? I've seen some interviews with him, and he just gives great credit to Notre Dame and just talks about how much of an impact it had. Beyond just Tim, let's make it about a different question. What was the impact of the university on students, on student athletes? Well, I'll go back to Lou Holtz. Lou has a line, and it's not a line, it's real. And when he talks to kids or their parents about Notre Dame, he said, this is not a four-year decision. It's a 40-year decision. And if you talk to any student athlete that went to Notre Dame, they may not get it while they're there. They may not get it if they happen to be good enough to play in the WNBA or the NBA or the NFL, but they certainly get it once they get out into the world and you experience that Notre Dame network and and what Notre Dame means to them. And, and I think Father Hesburgh uh, deserves a lot of credit because this is kind of crazy in today's day and age. Father Hesburgh insisted that if they're so qualified, that Notre Dame would have professors of different faiths. He would love to have a mathematics professor who's Jewish, you know, a a philosophy professor that was a Muslim. And if, if the person was qualified, he had no problem there was a professor who was an atheist. Father Hesburgh's view was, what good is it to put a Catholic bubble over Notre Dame? And all we do is Catholic, 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 and then four years later say, okay, Go out into the real world, which isn't Catholic, Catholic, Catholic. We have to prepare these kids to be successful in a world of diversity. And I think it's just that when Father Hesburgh was an advisor to every president. And you think you know, he still holds the record for the most honorary degrees. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, whether Republican or – it didn't matter. I mean, they wanted his his intellect and his, his view of bringing people together. And, you know, he knew football was important, but it wasn't – ever going to be so important that we would cheat to win games or something like that. So I think he set the tone with Father Joyce, then you make sure you have, you, have, uh, you have coaches that follow. So I think whether it's Tim Brown or Ishmael or Nalia Chanwa, who plays for us with the Fever, and she's a Notre Damer, uh, they'll all tell you the same thing. There's something about that place that is so special. But when you mention Tim Brown, you know he has a um, – and I used to use this when I was with the Dolphins. When every year we'd play the Colts, I'd give the same note to our radio guy – is Tim Brown was the answer to a trivia question. The first play ever in the history of the Hoosier Dome. We moved the game oh, yeah, because of the great Bob Welch. Purdue. We move it down here. Notre Dame's heavily favored, or at least we were favored heavily, against Purdue. And Purdue kicks off to Notre Dame. And Jerry put this freshman back there to receive the opening kickoff. That freshman fumbled the kickoff. Purdue went on and got three points, not seven, but then went on to upset Notre Dame. That freshman... Four years later, would win what is now Notre Dame's last Heisman Trophy. It was Tim Brown. So fun to be able to talk to you and, and have you tell these stories from the inside. I'm going to ask you about a particular game. Because mm-hmm. I think it was Holtz's first year. And that is the incredible comeback against USC at the Memorial Coliseum where Notre Dame won at the last second. They were down three or four touchdowns. Do you remember this game? Is this Were you there or not? No, there? no, I, I didn't travel with Notre Dame. Remember, I was the assistant SID. So, like, you didn't go? No, no. In fact, one year, one year, I think it might have been Jerry's third year or so, we, went and we played in the Aloha Bowl. And so that's Hawaii. That's nice, right? I was with Digger in Omaha, Nebraska, was minus 14. That's the difference <laughs> between being the sports information director, the associate sports information director, or the assistant sports information director, which I was the assistant. So I was in Omaha freezing. So no, I was not at the USC game, but yeah, that was 
But that was there, and he's talking about Digger Phelps, the uh, longtime basketball coach for Notre Dame, obviously. But but that was the game. It seemed that that Holtz started to work his magic. Then the next year they go to the Cotton Bowl, they lose, but they go to the Cotton Bowl, and the third year they go undefeated. You're at the and win the national championship. You're with the Dolphins at this by this time. Notre Dame wins what's probably the greatest game ever in the history of Notre Dame Stadium against the Miami Hurricanes. 31-30. 31-30. What was it like to be in Miami rooting, I'm assuming, Mm -hmm. for the Irish when the Hurricanes had forged this incredible dynasty under Jimmy Johnson? It was awesome because there was – we'll go back a couple years before when uh, Jerry Faust's last game. Uh, was 59-7. It, was it the Orange Bowl? And, you know, they were running reverses. You know, they could say, you know, Jimmy had the line, hey, you know, you, you you know, they don't pay me to stop my offense. They pay that guy to stop my offense. and But they ran it up. And what I remind people, that was in, what, late November was that game? Usually, and yeah. So December, January, February, I believe. So three months later, the Notre Dame basketball team goes down to Miami. Miami was bringing back basketball at that time. In fact, they didn't have a – place to play in and they played a place called the night center it was like like a like a rockefeller center type place so they put a court on a rockefeller center place and i think it was bill foster was the coach that that came back to restart the miami program and we beat them in basketball i don't know if we beat them by 70 or 60 or 50 (laughs) but if anyone now post game digger the players said no we just played well it was nothing to do with the football game three months before I will tell you, it had everything to do with the football game the three months before. Those basketball brothers played that game for their football brothers who got embarrassed three months before. So you're going to run it up on us in football. We're going to run it up on you in basketball. And then, uh, and then you know, and then a couple of years later, uh, you know, you, the, here's Miami and Notre Dame, the Catholics versus convicts, the whole thing. And I'm down there reading the Miami Herald every day and the Fort Lauderdale paper and Palm Beach paper. And I'm praying, if you're ever going to win one game, you have to win this one or my life is going to be miserable. And I believe we were on the road uh, because the team got in. I think I remember watching it in my hotel room around the road. And it was just, it, you know, I think it was, was Pat Terrell that knocked the ball down at the end in the end zone. The two point conversion. Yeah, yeah, Pat Terrell. Yeah. yeah. And uh, it was, yeah, oh, yeah, it gave me bragging rights for a while. But I used to love when Notre Dame would play. Notre Dame would play Pitt. I'd, you know, I'd bet Marino a bottle of wine on the game. And, uh, but it was, you know, Notre Dame is, you know, the, the beauty of Notre Dame is half the people watch them to see them win, and the other half people watch them to see them lose. And it's good for rivalries and smack talking because they play everybody. I mean, they play, they're getting ready to play Georgia. We're dating the podcast, but they're getting ready to play Georgia. In a couple weeks, they're going to play Michigan. A few weeks after that, it's USC. A few weeks after that, it's Stanford. See, I'm old school, though. I, I wish, and I, I, I understand, God, I understand it. The times have changed. It's not like it was when I was at Notre Dame or even when I was with the Dolphins. And I'll, I'll, I'll converse now with PR guys for teams and, you know, that are younger and how things are done differently. But I, I was trained by, yeah, we can now have Twitter and cell phones and podcasts, all sorts of stuff. At the end of the day, it's about relationships. That does not change. And I encourage young people to put the damn phone down and look people in the eye and talk to them and build relationships. You don't have to put a wall up between you and the media. You know, you can meet them halfway. And, and I just think that, that, I wish Notre Dame still played Purdue every year in football. I wish we still played Michigan State every year in football because there was something cool for those fans, who blue-collar fans who live in northern Indiana or outside Lafayette or outside East Lansing who forever have gone, who maybe they, I was there for the 10-10 tie in 66, that they could go. There was something – I mean, 
I don't want to see New Mexico. It's probably a lovely university. I don't want to see New Mexico play Notre Dame. I'd rather see Purdue play Notre Dame or Michigan State play Notre Dame. We could rekindle the memories of, yeah, I was at the game at the Hoosier Dome. I remember your Jim Everett did this or whatever. You know, New Mexico, Penn Notre State. Dame. Penn State. Those was Notre Dame, Penn rivalry. State games we had were great. Great games in the snow. I mean, Alan Pinkett oh, the, running for the, the pass from Meyer to. Rick Meyer, uh, one of the great Was it Bettis? It was Bettis mm-hmm. or Tony. I mean, that was one of the greatest games. I, I always said, I think one of the greatest games I ever saw with my own eyes at Notre Dame was a loss. It was the loss to uh, Boston College. And I always, when I went to Reebok, I worked with all the NFL coaches, so I became good friends with Tom Coughlin. I said, I don't know if I'll ever be able to forgive you for that. I mean, Tom Coughlin beat Notre Dame in the last second, I believe it was the last second field goal. Oh, after they'd beaten Florida State? Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, but, uh, uh, G, what was their quarterback's name? Foley. Glenn Foley. Glenn Foley. Glenn Fo- we got beat by Glenn freaking Foley at Notre well, Dame. Well, we were down, and then we come back. Exactly. And then they drive, and then, you know, this poor linebacker whose name I won't mention, just in case he's listening to the podcast, drops a for sure interception, which would have sealed the game. Mm-hmm. And then he kicks his 40 some yard field goal. You just couldn't believe the highs of one week. It was a great game. Everyone thought we would lose to Florida State. We. I say it's, I'm Catholic. I guess I, it was a great it's we. Game. And, uh, were you able, before we move on to the Dolphins, and then we'll talk some contemporary sports in your career working with um, the wonderful Bob Kravitz, who's a good dude. Mm-hmm. Uh, were you able to, to kind of keep up with Notre Dame? Well, I mean, you're so darn busy. Your weekends are busy. I mean, it's it's parallel uh, sports seasons. Were you able to kind of follow them and keep your friendship up? And what was it like when you ran into uh, Mike Golick as a big-time sportscaster when you used to see him as kind of a snotty nose it's interesting well i used to i went to the it was either the first or second wrestlemania uh they had at the stepping center at at south bend on the big screen and golick and i went with mike kelly who was our great offensive lineman and he's from massachusetts and golick was a player golick was a player then and mike was also a wrestler at notre dame so i they were like i you know i remember I, i was just a few years older than the players and i got along more with the players than i did the regular students at notre dame the regular students know they're very smart people. I'm not that smart. You know, they're affluent. I'm not. So I got along with the Golicks and the Mike Kellys of the world. So because <laughs> yeah, Mike's knew- brother Bob had been there with yeah, oh before that Joe yeah. Montana yeah yeah and uh, so yeah G- Golick was it was was a uh, uh, he was a piece of work back then. So it doesn't surprise me that he was uh, that he would go on to do radio and stuff like that. But um, but uh, yeah, I, I enjoyed my time with him and and I I, I, I enjoyed my time and Golick plays for the Dolphins. Yes, he did. He played yes, at he least did. a year, I think, yes, for he the did. Dolphins. Yep. We, in fact, it was a name. Here's a name out of the past. Uh, um, I still wish ESPN would do a thirty for thirty on the replacement games. If anybody remembers, there was a strike. Eighty six, eighty seven, eighty seven, eighty something like that. And where three games, there was one game that was wiped out. Week one was wiped out, I believe, and then you played weeks two, three, and four because they had to get the teams together. And that was the first year in Joe Robbie Stadium, and. My, I was a PR guy. Our first game ever in replacements was at Seattle. And I'm up there all week advancing. So I don't even know who the hell's on our team because they're practicing all week. And my assistants in Miami, I don't even know who the hell's playing for us because replacement guys, all new guys. and uh, Waiters and cab drivers. All, and- yeah, guys off the street. Mm-hmm. And But I knew that our second game, either second or, th- or third one, uh, was at home. And all I'm thinking is, oh, my God, the first touchdown pass in the history of Joe Robbie Stadium is not going to be thrown by Dan Marino, but it's going to be thrown by Kyle Mackey. 
<laughs> I mean, that's all I, that's, as a PR guy, that's all I would, I wasn't even concerned if we win or lose the game. I'm like, it can't happen. Kyle Mackey cannot be the guy that throws the first touchdown passes. Now, we want, we beat the Chiefs 42 to nothing, all ground game. He did not throw a touchdown, knock on wood. And when they finally came back, the first touchdown pass at Joe Robbie Stadium was number 13, Dan Marino. But uh, the, the, the whole replacement game thing to me was, was Coach Shula loved it. Because there were players that want, they would sit up in the in, in the meeting room, you know, Duper and Clayton, those guys, man, be leaning back, you know, kind of drifting off. The replacement guys were like eager, you know, they were like freshmen in high school. But my my point is, there was one guy that when the replacement season ended, there was one player on the Miami Dolphins who Shula was so impressed with, he kept him. So now this replacement player now has to play with all these guys who were just on strike, and a veteran player lost his job. When he came back, when the strike ended, sorry, there's somebody better than you. He was a tight end, went to Notre Dame. You want to guess? Joel Williams. Joel Williams out of Western Pennsylvania. Really? Joel Williams was was the the only player for the replacement team that made the Miami Dolphins and played. So here's Dan Marino, who's a strong union guy. His dad was a union guy in Pittsburgh. He was leading the newspaper delivery driver. Yeah, Yeah. Danny was leading the the pickets outside. You know, I, I drive through the pickets every day. PR guy. You go, you need to come join us, son. I say, if you pay for my car and you pay off my mortgage, I'll grab a sign. I'll stand here right with Is there a strike fund for PR flags? No, no, PR, no. We just get, we're, we're, we're worthless. Uh, but Joe Williams, I, I, haven't, I haven't told that story or haven't had that thought come through my head, but he was the one guy who made the team. Somebody needs to do a 20 for 20 and a whole thing or 30 for 30, whatever it is. Besides being Catholic, mm-hmm. besides being demanding, besides being winners... What are the similarities between Holtz and Shula? And did did they know, as far as you know, did they know each other? Yeah, I think they know each obviously other. Obviously, they coached together against each other in the NFL for one year when yeah. Holtz coached the Jets. The Jets. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that yeah, Shula, th- their paths crossed a little bit, and um, both from Ohio. And um, I, I, I've told people this: if, if the sometimes people complain about their boss. Remember, I was at Reebok; I had like twenty-five people under me, and they'd be like, "Oh, sometimes he's really tough." Coach Shula and Coach Holtz never asked more of you than they asked of themselves. And it would get to the point where it would drive you crazy. I mean, it would be so demanding. Like, why? Especially Shula, like, why does he need to know the, you know, why does he need to know these things? It's like, like when we would. Were you married? Did you have kids? No, I was single. I was single single with the Dolphins. And like, stuff like this. Again, this is before we had cell phones and Google and all this stuff, is I would be in Philadelphia from Monday night through Saturday when the team would come to Philadelphia. I'm advancing the game, quote-unquote advancing the game as a PR guy. You go visit the radio stations, TV stations, and newspapers. You go out to the Eagles facility, and you work with the media and answer questions. And you, I bring a thing that weighed 400 pounds with slides and pictures, clips, whatever anybody needed, your hard copy, news releases. It was hard to be a PR guy back then. Uh, anyway, I would be there, but one of my assignments from Coach Shula was wherever we were, Buffalo, New York, Philadelphia, and of course the bigger cities have more newspapers, is I would have to get the clips of every article about the Eagles that week in Philadelphia and cut it out and paper clip it or staple it together. And, you know, sometimes page two has the back of the story on page three. I'd have to get two copies of the paper because I have to cut it out, right, and put it together. And I would have to highlight stuff that he told me I would want to see, meaning he would want to see. 
he's Don Chula. I'm Eddie White. I'm, I'm from Wilkesbury. What do I know? But I figured it out. Like he'd want to read through there like a Wednesday practice with the Eagles. Uh, cornerback uh, Robert Vane uh, twisted his ankle, left ankle, on Wednesday's practice, but he should be okay. He wanted that highlighted. He wanted to know, come Sunday, that that guy that Duper's going up against on this certain play, in this certain situation, tweaked his ankle on Wednesday. So if, if I can design a play to make him turn on that ankle or as it. opposed to this way, or plan it, he, this, is the, this is the detail, and, and he would want all of us. So it's not just me, give it to him. Now he takes it and sits with the receiver's coach, with the offensive coordinator, with Danny, with Duper, you know, with the coordinators to go, what would be the best situation for us to call a play to take advantage of that? Ba, 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 ba. Now, the one thing I got to say about Shula, and this is before me, but Zonka, you know, they did a great thing on NFL Network about Shula. They did like as an, as an hour and a half, you know, that NFL Network does those specials. It's called a football live. Yes. They did a great Shula's? one on Shula. They did a really good one on Marino. They did I don't know if you saw the one on Marino. I never saw the one on Marino. Oh, I'll send it to you. But Shula's is 90 minutes. Yeah, and then Usually they did one on the perfect backfield that had Morris Kick and Zonka. Which is, those guys are lunatics. Those crazy people. But the, the, I love the trailer for Shula's. It was uh, Larry Zonka, Mercury Morris, and me. I mean, who doesn't belong in that group? <laughs> but the, but the, the best story was uh, Zonka telling the story that they're going out to uh, Oakland to play the Raiders. They'd never beaten him out there. And Zonka finds the Raiders playbook and gives it to John Sandusky. He says, you got to give this the shoes. I just found the playbook. You know, this is for the game. We could use this. And Dolphins get killed. They're, so they're on the plane coming back to Miami and Zonka goes up to Sandusky and says, what the hell? Did you give the book to Shula? And he says, yeah. And he goes, what did Shula say? Shula said, throw it in the garbage. We don't win that way. That's cheating. Sandusky but, was the offensive line coach. Yeah. Think about that. They, who, Which is Don, why Shula called Belichick Belichick when they asked him about it. it you know, the, the Don Shula, the winningest coach of all time, every one of those wins, he did it with integrity. Talk about, please, tell this story because it's one of my favorites uh, about Shula preparing the team, I think it was against the Los Angeles Raiders, and where he decided to have practice oh in God. the walkthrough. Yep, yep. Um the uh, when we played on the West Coast, Shula would always come out two days early to get the guys acclimated time wise. So we're playing the Raiders in Los Angeles at the Coliseum. So they're going to come out on Friday, practice in Miami, and then fly. So they get in in the evening of Los Angeles on Friday night. And the plan was we were going to practice at USC's practice field. And the, what we found out was USC was having their homecoming or something. And the guy warned me that. When you come to practice, you may run into like two hours worth of traffic. So it would normally be from LAX to USC is usually not that far. But on this Saturday, like which would be the next day we're going to practice, it's going to take you a long, long time. And it's going to be insane with all kinds of people having parties there at USC and then going out to the, to go to the Coliseum. So I tell our traveling secretary and – you know, he says, well, we'll talk about it when we land in Los Angeles. It's like four or five, whatever it takes to fly to L.A. Team gets in, we get to the hotel, and now we're going to have a meeting. And we're sitting there. I remember standing in the lobby with Coach Shula, our security guy, our traveling secretary, myself, and I'm telling them what I just told you. Hey, it's your call. I'm just telling you what, what the guy at USC said. You know, it's not going to take us a half hour. It may take us 90 minutes. And the one thing about Shula is he hated wasteful anything. He's like, we're not going to waste that time. He goes, do they have a parking lot here? 
And so we got our hotel up, and I'm like, I didn't have a rental car. I was like, where's the parking lot? And we're, we're, we are at LAX. We're in those hotels that the back of the hotel planes are landing, <laughs> and they did have like a four-level parking lot. So we walked out there, and we went to the roof of the parking lot. And there's the jets flying, and here's this roof parking lot. It had those cement barriers, you know, the ones you pull your car up to so you don't hit the wall. Those little things are like five inches tall or whatever. And they had them all over the place. And I'm thinking, you can't have a practice here. And Shula goes, we'll practice here tomorrow. We'll have our walk through here in the parking lot at the hotel with the airstrip of LAX right there. And we're all thinking he's kidding. He's serious. So I have to call, I think it was Jimmy Cephalo and Charlie Jones were doing the game for NBC. Their plan was to go to USC for our practice. I got to tell you, hey, don't go there. Come to the hotel. We're practicing in a parking lot. And Cephalo, and who played for Shula. Played for Shula. Yeah, completely Pittston, got it. From Pittston, Pennsylvania. Another Northeastern <laughs> PA guy. He got it. So we, uh, I remember telling our, P- I grabbed our team photographer. I said, and I, this is where you get lucky as a PR guy. Where's your room? He goes, oh, I got a terrible room. I'm facing the airstrip. I go, perfect. I said, our walkthrough is tomorrow at 2 or 3, whatever time it was. I said, I want you to take pictures outside your hotel room of our team practicing on this parking lot because no one's going to freaking believe this. No <laughs> one's going to believe this thing. So now it's the next day, and we're out there, and guys are running around in their shorts, like Duper and Clayton are going out on routes and looking down to make sure that they don't trip over the cement thing and then catching a pass from Marino. And like Chuck Studley, our defensive coordinator, yeah. he's yelling instructions. His mouth is moving, but all you hear is the sound of jets landing and taking off at LAX. We're the watching U.S. Open games yeah. or tennis matches. Where exactly. All you could hear was the planes yeah. flying over. We're sitting there going, this is insane. We're going to get killed. I mean, this, this, this doesn't make sense. So, so Dave Cross was our photographer. He got the pictures, the proof that I didn't make the story up. So we go out the next day, and for the first time in the history of the Miami Dolphins, they beat the Raiders on the West Coast in a regular season game, whether it was Oakland or L.A. We beat them. I, and so and so I told this story over and over and over. So when they were going to do the, the, the Coach Shula thing for NFL Network, a lady friend of mine at NFL Films said, we need to talk to you, get these stories. You know, they're true. I said, yeah, they're true. So I said, call Dave Cross. If you watch the Shula thing, you see me telling this story like I'm telling you, the picture comes up of us practicing. <laughs> and then Shula talks about like, Shula won so many games. He's like, yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I did that. Yeah, but, you know, because why should we go waste time? You know, 90 minutes and 90 minutes back, we can get to work. He's always about to work. All right, let's have a good work day today. Let's get the work done today. All right, boys, you got to work. It's always when about started, to work. When he came to the Dolphins in the early, I think it was 1970 was his first year. They went from 4-10 and 10 the previous year to 10-4, and 4, lost to the Raiders in the playoffs. And two years later, they're undefeated. But at the time, they had four-a-days practices, four-a-days in no the water. Miami Heat. No water. I mean, Kuchenberg and those guys said it was, I don't know how you did it. I mean, I, I and, and he would, he found Gary a premium on the street. I mean, he could, I mean, go back to the Baltimore days when he put the plays on Tom Maddie's arm. He had no That's quarterback. Right. And he just, he, he was, a, he was a, but he was a football coach, period. I mean, I remember him doing an interview once with somebody from the New York Times and they asked him, who's your favorite singer? And he went, wait a minute. And he asked his wife. So Dorothy, his first wife, Dorothy, who's that guy I like? Sinatra. Yeah, Sinatra. I like that guy. He's my favorite guy. He was a was, football coach. Was it kind of like Saban when they asked him about the 2016 presidential election? Like they asked him about what do you think of Trump's victory? And Saban goes, I don't, I don't had no idea who won. And it's not a joke. I mean, I worked with him one year when he was with the Dolphins, Nick Coach Saban. And he's like Belichick and Shula and, and Coach Holtz. These guys have this tunnel vision. It's about coach. Play and and you know like Gil Brandt says the best teams are the ones where the owners own coaches coach and players play. When somebody starts trying to do somebody else's role, you're not 
you're not going to be successful as maybe you should. There, there was a, a football life special on Dan Marino. It's really, really good. Obviously, it talks a little bit about the fact that he, he never won a Super Bowl. And it has Jimmy Cephalo, who you mentioned earlier, saying, we didn't win because of him. We didn't win because of us. And they have Peyton Manning and uh, Jim Kelly and, and others talking to John Elway, talking about Marino because Troy Aikman and Manning have both said Marino's is their favorite quarterback Absolutely. of all time. There's no doubt about it. But when Peyton had one of his first payback foundation things here, they brought Danny in because Danny was Peyton's guy. He wanted to be, and Troy Aikman has said that. You know, Aikman was our logo athletic guy for a long time. They both wanted to be like him. They want to be able to yell at their wide receivers right there on the field right, <laughs> and, and not take any crap. For Can you imagine if Peyton was yelling at Reggie? We'd be like, oh, my God, you're yelling at Reggie. Danny didn't care. Danny would yell at Clayton. He'd yell at Duper. And Danny was Danny. He was a guy from Western PA, tough as nails. And just, I still think he has the, the greatest arm that I've ever seen. Well, that was the question I was actually getting ready to ask you. I was having lunch with uh, Bill Benner, who'd been on the podcast, and a couple of friends of mine. And we were talking about greatest this and greatest that. And um, I said, well, we we're talking about quarterbacks. And we all had different opinions, as everybody else does who's listening. But I said, you can't argue with Tom Brady's career. Um, I would rather have Montana's career because he was 4-0, even though he didn't hasn't won as many Super Bowls. But if I had to choose one person to throw the perfect pass to save my kid's life, it's Dan Marino. He's, you know, I, I'm... I'm and what was he like to be around? Oh, he was the best. He was the absolute best. And I think it started the first day I showed up to be the PR guy for the Miami Dolphins. They're in minicamp. Because he's already there. He's already there. Team's out on the field. Uh, some guy from downtown Miami office drives me out to camp because they're out at St. Thomas University, drops me off. They really weren't very professional. He just drops me off, says, Here's, here, and I walk in. I'm like, Hi, I'm the new PR guy. And the security <laughs> guy takes me out onto the field. I'm standing there, and I'm looking. I, now I know a whole bunch of beat guys are looking at me like, is that the new PR guy? Because the word from Miami was the Dolphins hired the assistant from Notre Dame. Oh, we're going to eat this guy up and spit him out. So I'm standing there, you know, with a tie, and I'm sweating like crazy, and I'm hot. And um, these beat guys are staring me down, and I'm watching the the field, you know. And all of a sudden, the practice ends, and the security guy takes me out. And first, he introduces me to Don Shula. So, Coach, this is Eddie White. Here's our new PR guy. How intimidating was that? Yeah. Well, it was intimidating until he said, yeah, nice to meet you. Hey, uh, Gene Corrigan called me because Gene Corrigan, our AD at Notre Dame, had worked with Coach Shula either both at Kentucky or Virginia or somewhere in, Sh in Shula's early career. And they were friends. And Mr. Corrigan had called Shula and said, hey, you're getting one of our best guys. You're going to like this guy. So he says, Gene Corrigan called me and told me, uh, you're a good guy. You know, you know, you'll do a good job for us. So, uh, yeah, try not to screw anything up and uh, hope you do a good job here. And he walked away. I'm thinking, oh, God, it wasn't warm, but okay. And he had that walk. Yeah, he had that walk. He was and just solid in the jaw. And he walked away. I'm thinking, man, it's Don Shula. So all of a sudden, the security guy says, you want to meet some of the players? Yeah, he goes, well, you probably should meet Marino. You're going to work with him a lot. I said, yeah, okay. So Marino comes over, and he's walking off. And I remember Stuart, Stuart Weinstein was our security guy. He says, Dan, this is our new PR guy. And Danny had the look that now I know. It's the look that says, oh, God. This guy already has 10 interviews for me to do. You know, oh my, he's, I, he's already hating me. He had that look. 
And he goes, he's a I, big guy. He's like very six, tall four, guy. Got the pants, good looking, you know. It's like you, good looking, tall, tan. Oh, you know? you're so. And cute. he goes, he goes, how you doing? How you doing, man? How you doing? You know, he's that Western P. How you doing, man? Sup? So I first heard the word sup. It's really what's up, but he says sup. He goes, sup, man. How you doing? I said, I'm Eddie White in the new PR guy. He goes, yeah, where'd you come from? I said, left Notre Dame. He goes. You left Notre Dame to come to this freaking circus? He didn't say freaking circus. I'm like, yeah. He goes, man, all right, well, uh, good luck. Hope you do well. I said, thank you. And he walked away, and I go, what was that? And the security guy said, don't worry, but he's tough to you know, get used to. I said, okay. So all of a sudden, an intuition kicked into me. I can't To this day, I can't believe I did it back then. I met some other people. Finally, I walked back in the locker room. I'm going to go in there, I'm going to do some of the secretaries and meet people on the football side of it. And I happen to walk by, and here comes Marino. I said, Dan, he goes, hey, there's the new guy. How you doing? I go, good. I said, Dan, listen, we're getting, I don't know what I can say on this podcast. I'll try to clean it up. But I said, Danny, I said, you know what? I didn't call him Dan. I said, Dan, we're going to get along great. Because I said, I'm just a dumb blank from Pennsylvania like you. And I walked away. And I left him there speechless. He was like, because most people at that level, you know, Peyton, we all kind of, we all like defer and we're all like nice. I went right at it. So, you know what? We're going along great because I'm just a dumb blank from Pennsylvania like you. And I walked away. And I think from that day on, you know, and then years, the years go by, I end up, I babysat his kids. And then when he got involved, when he got inducted in the Hall of Fame, he invited my wife right to his oh, Hall of Fame thing. Which is his and character. You keep hearing it, people about what he does for folks. He brought all his high school kids there, his high school teammates, his college teammates from Pitt, and of course, all the great Dolphins players. He just had, you know, and then with his son with, with the autism, what he's done in South Florida. He's just a, we were blessed. We were logo athletic. We had guys, guys, Elway, uh, Danny. Um, you know, Troy, uh, they were Marcus Allen. They were guys, guys. But, uh, you know, if you were in a foxhole, you want John Elway and you want Dan Marino in your foxhole. But the arm, it's either him or then there's my youth. It's Joe Namath, both from Western Pennsylvania, as the great quarterbacks seem to be, right? Montana, Kelly. Have uh, you seen the show where they bring Kelly and Montana and Marino no. on together? And I think Namath is on. I'll send it to you. It's really, it's, really good. It's It's funny because... Montana says, and then we'll we'll fast forward to Indianapolis here. But Montana, they're talking about the new rules. You know, so this is just a couple. The, the show is just a couple of years old. Montana goes, well, the only person I'd rather see throw the football under today's rules is Dan Marino, and gives him that big, great compliment in front of all his peers, all Hall of Famers, and you obviously Montana had beaten Marino in the Super Bowl. But that was high praise, and and if you read this, if you watch this, uh, excuse me, this TV show, you see that Brett Favre say the greatest pure passer of our generation, and it's you know as a Dolphins fan, it breaks my heart that he didn't win a Super Bowl, even though I'm very happy they beat the Bears. And he the wasn't mobile. Year. I mean, it's, if you looked at his knee braces and stuff like that, I mean, he could he could move quick to his right or left, get a step, and just stand there. And I and I used to tell people, I mean, we're on radio, so nobody could see it. So imagine. Uh, raise your hands over your head and make two fists. When Danny would do this and go, let's this to the right left, I'd hit my assistant Jeff Blum and said, something good's going to happen because he's going to audible. He sees something that, and, and Duper and Clayton are gone, whether it was the Orange Bowl or Joe Robbie, gone, touchdown. And, you know, I, I, I still to this day, one of the greatest things I have, the only game Danny ever threw six touchdown passes, he lost to the Jets in overtime. Ken O'Brien and Wesley Walker beat us 51 45. Yep. Comes in the locker room. Takes off the right wristband off his wrist that he just threw, six touchdowns, slams it on the ground. I walk in right behind him. Shules says, shut the door, take a knee. It's always a prayer. We kneel down. I'm wearing a blazer, and there's this wristband sitting there. 
I pick it up, put it in my pocket. To this day, I have the wristband that he wore the only game he ever threw six touchdown passes. Does he know? And lost. I don't know. I don't think so. I'm not going to tell him. He'd want it back. <laughs> I'm going to give it to him. We are here with Eddie White, and he's telling stories, and we're loving it. And we want to talk a little bit about Indianapolis sports, particularly your time as a sports talk show host mm-hmm. with Bob Kravitz. Kravitz and Eddie. It was a rollicking few hours every mm-hmm. afternoon. What was it like to – did you know Bob beforehand? And what was it like to venture back into the other side of kind of sports or sports journalism? It was scary because, um, one, I knew Bob because I read him. but I, I And I maybe introduced myself to him because I was at Reebok then – like at a Super Bowl, because um, I had worked in various capacity, 26 Super Bowls in a row for the NFL. So I always see Bob there, and he's representing the paper, that the city I live in. And uh, so I'd say hi to him or something, but I didn't know him. What year and, is this, roughly? Uh, I don't know. Um, let's see, I've been here nine, 14 years ago, maybe? That sounds about right. Something like that. And um, so, I mean, I knew of him, and at this point, Reebok uh, had gotten purchased by Adidas, made a bunch of changes, and they were, I'll say it, they were forcing me to go to Boston every week to work. I didn't want to move to Boston, but that's where the job was. And um, so, because I, I love it here. And my wife said, we wanted to stay here. So I would be here on weekends and be in Boston during the week. So I was looking for something here. And, um, you know, and I'm a PR guy, so we're always behind the scenes, you know, we're not on air and I always thought I have a terrible voice and I swear too much so I'm definitely not for somebody to be with on the radio and anyway I get a call from a guy Tom Severino a guy named Kent Sterling uh, that worked with Jeff Smolian and they said hey they're going to start an all sports station in Indianapolis and I'm like I'm wondering okay do they want a guest like they want to talk to Peyton you know one of our Reebok guys or whatever. and they're like no we want to talk to you maybe about hosting a show I'm like what are you talking about and they're like well we have Bob Kravitz and that's the lightning rod. That's who we needed. But Bob can't do a show by himself. We need someone to be his foil, to play off him. And we don't want someone from another station. We don't want someone that people are familiar with from some other place. We'd like to get somebody who's ours, like new, that's ours. And we've been asking people, and we talked to a bunch of people, and they said, hey, you need to talk to this Eddie White guy. He knows everybody in his Rolodex and blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, wait a minute. No, I, my voice is terrible. And I swear too much. I can't do radio. So they said, we'll just come in and do a fake show with Kravitz. So I came in one night because I'm thinking, well, the pluses are I could live in Indianapolis. And so we would came in late one night at Emmis, and Bob and I did a fake show. They had like secretaries call with fake calls. And we were supposed to do it for two hours. I think we did it for like 45 minutes. And Severino came in with Kenster and said, stop. I'm like, God, we're that bad? He's like, no, this is going to be great because you guys are different and you guys – I disagree on almost everything, and this is going to make great radio. Okay, great. You spent a lot of time kind of, and I've worked with Bob Kravitz on not a lot of stories, but several actually happily pretty big ones. He's got a terrific sense of humor, very self-deprecating, but mm-hmm. you kind of stuck it to him in a fun way, like jabbed him and like, you well, know, he'd, was, have, he'd write a column and have a, uh, an opinion about something. I'd say, then you, there'd be 25 callers the next day who completely disagreed with him and mm-hmm. And Eddie would say, <laughs> now, and, and it was never like voice of the people, Bob. <laughs> it was never manufactured. It was never, hey, what, 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 what side do you want to take? Okay, I'll take the other side. There are many times we agreed on stuff. I uh, mean, not many, a few. Uh, but there were times we didn't. And I had great respect for him. We became friends. We're still friends. But we had, I, I thought our show was different because it was um, two guys who'd actually worked 
like in sports. I mean, he covered it for a million years. I was in it. And, you know, we, we, we weren't a guy that, you know, went and studied broadcasting, you know, was a disc jockey and just knew how to push buttons. And now is a radio show just because he knows how to do radio. To me, I always called that Uncle Tommy radio. My Uncle Tommy is a mailman back in Wilkesbury. <laughs> They'd be like, give my Uncle Tommy a show. He knows nothing about sports. You know, he reads the paper. He's a fan. It'd be like giving him the microphone. He'd go, I think the Eagles are going to win the Super Bowl every year. It's like the, the old Ditka guys, you know, Ditka, the first. It's like, at least with Kravitz and I. Well, we, Kravitz is from here. He went to IU. So yeah, he had a, had a he, he had local ties. And I, you know, I spent time at Notre Dame. So, and, and every time we made a point, I tried to reference something from my past, or he would reference his past, and support it with a story. And, you know, I mean, and I'm proud of a lot of the crazy things that we did in, you know, the couple of years uh, that we were there. I mean, and it just ended because? Well, no. Uh, it ended because um, I I don't know many things, but I do know sports PR, and I thought, and I said it on the air, so I'm not I'm not saying something I didn't say before. When the Speedway uh, took the its product off ESPN and went to Versus, I said it's the dumbest thing I've ever seen in sports marketing PR. That it's it's the second worst thing to happen to the track since the, the split. Right? Wasn't the, did anybody agree the split's the worst thing? We all agree to that. Sure. Uh, Non-fatality. Sure. Yes, 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 exactly. But the w- second worst thing is you. if you have a sports product, where do you want to be on what? <laughs> I'll give you one guess. It begins with an E. Because if you're on ESPN, you got the Kornheiser show talking about you. You got Golick and Greenberg talking about you. You got SportsCenter. You're going to get all this, all this extra PR hits that you're going to get. I said versus to me is Ohio State versus Michigan. What the hell's versus? Where is it? Where do you find it? Walk into a sports bar in Atlanta. Are you going to see versus? Back then. Let's go now, back and then. This is pre Miles. Is this? Oh, wait. Yeah, wait. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Pre Mark Miles absolutely. and the current regime that I'm, rejuvenated the IMF. Absolutely. I'm not being negative about what is going on now. Back then. Uh, and that was just a stupid move. And I said it. Um, and then Tom Severino dies of cancer. And they get rid of Kent Sterling, and new regime came in, and part of the new regime was some of the people at the track that helped put the versus deal together for the track. So I remember Kravitz telling me, he goes, I think our days are numbered. I said, how could they be? We have the number one show. Somebody told me to this day we're still the highest rated 3 o'clock sports show ever, like for most people. And I'm like, how could they? And he was right, and they got rid of us. So it you miss is it? it is. Uh, I miss being able to tell stories and comment on things that happen on a daily basis, uh, it can't do that now because I, I work for the Pacers. I represent the Pacers and, and the Fever and everything here, so I can't do that. I do enjoy doing a Pacers post game show, but sometimes I don't listen to a lot anymore because, quite frankly, I think. And again, this sounds so egotistical. I know a lot about the NFL. I know how things work, and sometimes there's people out there talking on the radio that never worked in the league, don't know about the NFL, and they're saying things that are flat out wrong aren't true, and I don't want to bang my head against the thing, so I'll listen to, um, you know, uh, news. I'll listen to Howard Stern, because like you, he's a great interviewer, uh, and I'll listen to uh, uh, 70s music. I told you I was weird. Yeah, we, we're going to ask you a question about music here in just a few minutes. Uh, as we wrap up, you're listening to Leaders and Legends podcast, presented by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. Sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana. 
McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer, and the Crown Plaza Hotel, Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station. I'm going to take a few minutes here before we get to the final questions. Rapid fire. You ready? Yeah. Your opinion. Uh Uh-oh. Ready? Mm Mm-hmm. Larry Bird and your all-time starting five. Larry Bird's one of them, right? No, I'm asking you. No, Larry Did you Bird. put Larry Bird in your all-time starting? Oh five? God, yes. Oh God, yes. Oh yeah, he, him. And then you want the other four? Sure. Oh brother, uh, Larry Bird, Allen Iverson. Because I don't know if anybody ever played hard. Every forget practice. I'm talking about games. Every <laughs> night, the guy played hard. Do it. Uh, they, do it. No, do it. Practice. Will Chan- practice? No, that, that's that's the, our buddy Jim Moore. Um, definitely Allen Iverson, Larry Bird. I love Will Chamberlain. See, I'm old. Will Chamberlain. You know my favorite player was growing up in Pennsylvania, and I'm so glad I got to meet him, George McGinnis, when he was a Sixer. Oh, and when I he get was a here, Sixer, and I, and yeah. I get to know him. My wife knew his family, so I love George McGinnis. So I got to put George McGinnis in there. So, it's, oh, my God, I got George McGinnis, Larry Bird, Will Chamberlain, Larry, Larry and, and Allen Iverson, and... You need a shooting guard. I need a shooting guard? No, I'm going with Pistol Pete Maravich. That's my team. We'll beat anybody. I don't care. We don't, we, we don't play position. For, you can't stop Will Chamberlain. Mac's going to be solid. Larry Bird, my God, Allen Iverson, and Pistol Pete Maravich. Who's your coach? Me. Oh, I'm my. coaching. I'm coaching. <laughs> we'll have to ask Shula and Holtz when we get yep. them on the podcast Uh-oh. about Eddie White uh, coaching. People don't realize how great Wilt Chamberlain was. Wilt Chamberlain wants the NBA is an NBA game is 48 minutes. Wilt Chamberlain for an entire season once averaged over 48 minutes a game. He grabbed 55 rebounds in one game against Bill Russell. And he doesn't seem to get the sort of, I mean, everyone talks about how great he is, but the most dominant physical specimen in the history of the NBA, true or false? Yes. I've asked Sam Jones, the Boston Celtics, won 10 rings, top 50 of all time. Who's the greatest player of all time? I thought he'd say Russell because he played at Russell. And I thought, maybe I'll say Jordan. He said, it's the only guy in the history of this sport that said, I'm going to lead the league in scoring, did it. I'm going to lead the league in rebounding, did it. I'm going to lead the league in assist, did it. He goes, it was Will Chamberlain. The difference between Wilt and Bill was, these are the guys that play with him, is Bill Russell would step on his mother to win. He and had, they've all said He that. was a lion. Wilt was a softie. And do you know, when in those great finals when the Celtics and the Lakers played each other, Wilt would stay at Bill's house when the That's games right. were in Boston, and Bill would stay at Wilt's mansion in L.A. Just during the finals. Can you imagine that today? It never happened. Billy Cunningham said that Wilt was too nice. Yeah. He goes, nice. he'd go up to dunk a basketball, then he'd pull it back and mm-hmm. miss the shot because he'd break a guy's. He goes, he knew he'd break a guy's arm if yep. he went through with it. Um, next question. Greatest individual performance you ever witnessed in any sport where you were there and oh saw it? Oh, my God. I wish you had given me these ahead of time. It's a, you're taking athletic, right? Sure. Because uh, athletic, my goodness gracious. And I, let me throw one out, because this is the one that I was kind of guessing that you may go with, and maybe you weren't at the Dolphins at the time. When Marino comes back from the Achilles injury, throws all the touchdowns to beat the Patriots. That was after me. What about when... I, I'm trying to think, greatest athletic performance that I saw with my own eyes. Wow. Yeah, again, I saw 26 straight Super Bowls. So, I mean, there were some great Super Bowl performances, but even, you know, 
a, a great kick by Venetieri. I saw that in Houston when you know for the Patriots. Sure. Um, uh, you know, I'm trying to think, F- baseball, but an individual, I don't have one. You know, I could easily Monte or Marino's six touchdown passes, but we lost. But that was great accomplishment. You know, that's one of them. I, I will have an answer a half hour from now. And I'm like, oh, my God, how could I have forgotten that? But I've seen so many great things. You know, it could be Tigers' first Masters. You saw Tigers? Yeah. First, first Masters, Masters win yeah. when he won by, what, 14 strokes? Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, why don't you just say that one? That's pretty damn good. Yeah, that's good. But, you know, but, but it's, it has to be an athletic performance. Like, like, I was there when Janet Evans handed the flame to Muhammad Ali to start the Olympics in Atlanta. That from whatever level you want to look at that, politically, athletically, our country. It, it was that was as moving as anything. I was standing as close to her as I'm sitting with close to you right now when Whitney Houston sang the greatest anthem we've ever had oh, you're in kidding. Tampa. Uh right as we, we were going to the Gulf War. It was the first Super Bowl where we had to use the metal detectors. Yeah, the and, Giants and the Bills. Yeah. And that's where yeah, that was that Super Bowl. There's so many stories just out of that Super Bowl. But that's where I, that's where my believe it or not, my friendship with Whitney Houston began. At that weekend, because we found out that her uncle played basketball for my grandfather back in the day, and we be, we became friends till the day she died. Um, that was a phenomenal. I mean, I get goosebumps thinking about it because we everyone had flags, flags American and- flags, and we just we just uh, played Lee Greenwood's "God Bless the USA" and showed videos of moms and dads saying goodbye to their families as they're going off to the Gulf War, and there were snipers all over the darn place, and we had um, nurses dressed as civilians in every part portal of the stadium in case there was a bomb dropped that they would go through with needles and inoculate everybody. I mean, there was so much emotion going on in that, that stadium at that, that time. And she stands up in that little one foot podium and delivers this anthem that, yeah, she, she, she sung it in the stadium, but it was played on it. It was taped. They all sure. were, and it was the greatest anthem of all time. I mean, it was just the most, one of the most moving moments of my life. So I don't have an athletic one. Well, no, those are all pretty darn good, and I guess I should note that future Mayor Greg Ballard was one of those folks being deployed wow. for the Persian Gulf War. Mm. Last question before we get to the five questions, because this is something I struggle with as a fan, just besides being psychotic about all my teams, like all fans are. What's the most you've ever felt sorry for a player? Which player, when they didn't perform or didn't come through in the clutch, did you just heart ache for? Mm. And it didn't have to be a team that you were like working for, just as a fan, just as a journalist, where you're like, I feel so sorry for him or her. You know, I I think... Because of what happened since, and again, it wasn't on my team, just because I'm old enough, it, I saw it live, and is the Bill Buckner thing, because that, that you know, here he was beloved in Chicago, beloved in Boston, and all of a sudden, you know, became a pariah in Boston, and, you know, and, and wherever he would go, he that was going to fall. I mean, that's part, that's an obituary. He let the ball go under his leg and and lost the game. Um, you know, I feel, game six of the uh, yeah, 86 I mean, and they had another World game series against I, the, the other guy. Mets. I feel sorry for he didn't do anything. We wouldn't do is the Bartman in the, in the Cubs game. Yeah, I mean, if it kills the guy, we all would have done the same. The ball was blowing. I had friends that were sitting in the same section that night. The ball was blowing back. It was going out this way. It was blowing back towards the field, and he didn't do anything that we all would have done. 
tried to catch a foul ball. Mm-hmm. And this poor guy, what happened to him that night, what happened to him since? His family. You know, both him and, 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 and their families and Buckner and his family. For what? Because of ball. I mean, if it was scripted and everything went the way it's supposed to be, like Chris Berman would say, it's, it's, it, that's, it'd be professional wrestling. <laughs> but it doesn't. That's why they play the games. That's why they play the games. A guy misses a field goal. You know, Scott Norwood. Scott Norwood. You know, that's what made me think of the question. Stuff you happens. Were right there when I mean, Scott Norwood misses it, yeah, a field I had, goal. Yeah, I had T-shirts in my arm that said Buffalo Bills Super Bowl champs had to score on them. We were literally, me and me and the other guy from Logo, Logo 7 were about five yards as the ball's being kicked. We're five yards on the field coming from the, the opposite end zone corner. Buffalo Jills are right next to me. I schmooze with them. Mm-hmm. And I'm getting ready to run on. And we had to, I was going to hit Kelly and Bruce Smith. He's going to hit Thurman Thomas and Marv Levy and get them on the, get them on. So, cause it gets exposure. That's where NFL licensee. We go running on the field. The ball goes right, right. We do a pirouette like a ballet guy into the tunnel. This is before eBay. Throw them in the garbage. And we said, uh-huh. run the shirts 2019 New York Giants. And then we got the shirts in the locker room because by the time they we got them done, we got them in the locker room and Hostetler put one on and Parcells and and the Giants won. Pat Riley once made this statement. Tell me if you think it's true or false. If I had to have someone to take a shot to win a game, I'd choose Michael Jordan. If I had to choose someone to take a shot to save my life, I'd choose Larry Bird. I agree. I mean, I, I don't know if we've had a better – I mean, it's like this. You and I can go out right now monkeying around. We can make some putts. But if we needed a putt to save our life, we're probably calling a guy named Nicholas to do it. <laughs> uh, same thing with shooters. You can get all – Stephen Curry's a great shooter. All these guys are great shooters. But who has done it more times in the clutch than Larry Bird? I, 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 if there is, I've, I don't know of him or her, uh, but I agree a hundred percent. That's who I'd go with. We've gone on for a little over an hour, which is longer than usual, but we've really kind of only scratched the surface. So we're going to skip the five questions, uh, because we've asked so many sports related questions. Oh, but- pick one of the five. Is this the, is this the, is this the, ra- is this the five, is this the quick five or is this, this is the five that we end all, you want all five? Yeah. Yeah. All right. We'll yeah. do all five. You ready? Yeah. Go. What was your first job? Uh, be working in the oh no, I was gonna say the A and P, but it was no, it was freshman sophomore year, like part time job, right? Randy job. Uh, selling, uh, carrying cokes, uh, uh, selling at the circus. I was like a vendor selling cokes at the circus. And how dumb was I? I carried, I use, I'm a righty, so I use my right hand the whole time. So by the end of the week, my right forearm looked like Steve Garvey slash Popeye, <laughs> and the left was normal. So selling cokes at the circus. Second question is, what was your first concert? Black Oak, Arkansas, Kingston Armory. Jim Dandy. Yeah. The lead the singer. Oh. Yeah. Black Oak, Arkansas. Google it. People under 40, Google it. <laughs> if you could recommend any book for someone to read, which book would you recommend? Oh, wow. Um, that's a good question. Um, there's a book that Father Hesburgh wrote with Father Joyce. It's about their journeys around the world. I think it's like Ted and Ned's Excellent Adventure. That's probably not it, but it's Ted and Ned something. <laughs> where they, they went all no over father in there anywhere. Yeah, all over the world. And the reason I like the book is you don't have to be Catholic to read the book. Um it's about the world and 
how simple people can affect the world in non-simple ways. And it's just, it's just a wonderful book. It's Ted and Ned, Father Joyce, Father Hesburgh, something. Travels. Chris Spangle is worth twice what I pay him to do this podcast. God love him. Travels with Ted and Ned. That's it. That's it. I like Ted and Ned's Excellent Adventure better, but that's okay. It's a good book. Keanu Reeves as Father Theodore Hesburgh. No, he's too young. <laughs> no, be, I don't know. I didn't Jimmy think Stewart. It. He's dead. Wait, I don't know who we'd get to play Father Ned and Father Ted. Eddie White. No, 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 no. Oh, that profanity would come in handy. Mm-hmm. Fourth question. If you could witness any event in history, which event would you choose? Oh, wow. Non-sports. It could be sports, but maybe non-sports. Witness being be there when it happens. Be there happened. as it happens. You could be on the moon when. Yeah, I, was gonna, I, was thinking, I guess that's the easy one. You want to be there with Neil Armstrong, and as long as we got a way out of here, okay. I don't want to sit and go. Hey, I got bad news. We're not getting out. Would that's you like the, to go there and say, "Sup, sup, Neil"? Yeah, sup, that, Neil. yeah, sup, Neil. Okay, boiler up, boiler up, baby. <laughs> uh, that's the easy one. But I think I'll go nutsy here, and I think because it it, I've always been fascinated with politics too. I'd love to be like, I joke, I want to be like a press secretary. I really do. I want, But it's going to be like the Dean Martin show. I'm walking out with a cigar glass of wine and a couch. There's no podium. And we're, we're going to do things differently. But I well, think, as a former political press secretary, I would have to help you on that. Yeah. yeah I did. Well, that's the way we're going to roll. It's the way we're going to roll. They're, they're going to have to deal with it. But, but I think I would like to have been there when um, Richard Nixon went to China with uh, uh, Chow and Lai. Yeah, in early seventy two. Yes, it, it was. It was that doesn't that wasn't going to ever happen. That was like, oh man, we only had three TV networks then, right? It was like even Walter Cronkite was like, holy smokes. Um, it, read, that was that read was, Pat Buchanan's book. Um, whether you're a Republican mm-hmm. or a Democrat or agree with him or disagree, but Pat Buchanan wrote a book called Nixon's White House Wars. And he was in the comm shop. Uh, he was actually started work for Nixon in 65, but he was in the comm shop at the White House and he was on that trip. And he writes about it from a kind of a flack PR mm-hmm. perspective. You'd enjoy it. Oh, I will definitely get that. that t- I, I would love to have seen that. Yeah. Last question. I shocked with that answer, didn't I? Yeah, well, we're big fans of Nixon here on Leaders and Legends, <laughs> much to our detriment sometimes. Maybe. He stole my umbrella when I was like six years old. Did you get it back? No. Son of a gun, he didn't send my umbrella back. My grandfather took me down there to see if he was campaigning against uh, Kennedy, I guess it was. And uh, it was starting to rain. My grandfather, who was a politician in Wilkes-Barre, I'm the only one with an umbrella. My mother said, it's going to rain. And she was here. And, uh, and then the lady, whatever, later guy said, hey, we'll send it back to you. I never got it back. Nixon stole my umbrella. Come on. Go to the Nixon Library. Maybe it's there. It, uh, it probably gave it to Pat for anniversary or something. <laughs> Last question. If you could have dinner two hours off the record with anyone living today, whom would you choose? Wow. Off the record? No one knows what you talk about, just the two of you. I think it's present. Current? Mm-hmm. Or no. any of them? Well, I can only have one, right? Right, but you could choose another president, not just President Trump. No, I, I think it'd be President Trump. I would like to sit with him for two hours. Would you give him some PR advice? First, we're going to play golf. 
We're going to play nine holes. <laughs> two hours. We've got nine holes. No secret service. No caddies. Just the two of us. And we play golf. I chat. We've been absolutely and completely and totally blessed to have Eddie White on the podcast. I hope you will come back for another time. Oh, God, yeah. Not just because you work for my two favorite football teams, but because you are generous with your intellect and you are generous with your stories. And for any of us who know Eddie, we know how much he does for so many people and organizations and charities that never gets publicized. And he does it because of who he is and his character. And we're just thrilled to have you. Let's do one around the Super Bowl. I got 26 Super Bowls worth of stories. We're ready. All right. Thank you, Eddie. I bet the Dolphins will be in there. <laughs> Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends, brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com. That's robert at veteranstrategies.com. Strategies.com.